the concentration that we are cultivating here on retreat is the concentration of the Noble Eightfold Path, wise concentration, which is concentration that is supported by wise effort and wise mindfulness. And so this is actually pretty important that we know how we are aiming our minds, how we are cultivating our concentration. Wise effort is is crucial in that we are aiming our minds to let go of, abandon the unwholesome, unskillful qualities of mind, those based in greed, aversion, and delusion. And we are cultivating and maintaining wholesome qualities of mind, those qualities that are based in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, qualities such as love, kindness, generosity, wisdom. In his talking about exploring, cultivating wholesome and abandoning unwholesome, the Buddha used an analogy of feeding and starving. He talked about that there are qualities of mind that we, sh- we should nourish and encourage. These are the wholesome qualities of mind that we should feed. And there are qualities of mind that we should not feed, that we should um, denourish, that we should starve certain qualities of mind that, are, that lead to our suffering, that lead to our struggle, stress, dissatisfaction. And so he used this analogy of feeding and starving. And tonight I'd like to talk about some of the qualities that we would like to let go of, abandon, and some of the qualities, the factors that we'd like to encourage in our practice of right concentration. So in particular, in um, talking about this feeding and starving analogy, the Buddha mentioned the list of the five hindrances as qualities that we should abandon, that we should actively find ways to denourish these factors of mind because they lead not to our welfare and happiness, but to our struggle and suffering. And then there are several other lists that he encouraged us to cultivate to nourish Many lists he encouraged us to nourish. The qualities of the seven factors of awakening, the the, uh, qualities of the five faculties, the four brahma-viharas, the qualities of kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Many, many qualities the Buddha mentioned that we should encourage and nourish. Tonight I'd like to contrast the five hindrances not with one of those lists, but with uh, another list that may not be as familiar to you. If you've attended this retreat before, this, this list will be familiar to you. But uh, it's not a list that we tend to talk about much on regular uh, Vipassana retreats. It's the list of the five factors that support concentration. They're sometimes called the five jhanic factors. And these factors actively counter the qualities of the hindrances. And so it's a good uh, 
prepared list to explore in our talk tonight. So I'd like to start first by exploring a little bit about the hindrances, but not in a detailed way, not in a usual way of going through in detail each of the hindrances. The hindrances, I know that many of you, most of you have probably heard quite a few talks on the hindrances, and some of you might even be able to give a talk on the hindrances. Um, The five hindrances are sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and anxiety and doubt. Sometimes sounds like seven, but sloth and torpor are paired and restlessness and anxiety are paired as a hindrance. So the Buddha described these states as uh, states that particularly hinder concentration. They get in our way in terms of settling the mind. You can see this in just looking at a couple of them, like if you think about restlessness, how restlessness works, it keeps the mind scattered and distracted, which is the opposite of the unified mind. A mind that's filled with ill will is not at peace, at rest. A mind that's continually wanting things is again, it's got a kind of a, an unsettled quality to it. So we can see how these qualities actively obstruct the possibility of concentration. And so it's useful to learn how to explore these factors and let go of them. In our mindfulness practice, we tend to turn towards them and explore them actively. In our concentration practice, we have a slightly different perspective. And so I'd like to talk a little bit in general about how to work with difficult energies that obstruct and get in the way of concentration. But not so specifically about each one. First, I'd like to um, offer an analogy that the Buddha used for the hindrances. He compared the hindrances, he called them, he called the hindrances encirclers of the mind. And he said they are like a banyan tree. Now some of you may know what a banyan tree is, but most of us don't have daily uh, encounters with banyan trees in in our country. So I would like to describe to you what a banyan tree is, how it works. Because the, the Buddha's analogies were very um, intuitive and very apt. And they rely on your understanding something about the, uh, the thing that he's making an analogy about. So a, a banyan tree is a kind of a fig tree that begins its life by having a seed of the, of the banyan tree deposited in the crook of another tree. And what that seed does is it sends out roots, moisture-seeking roots that seek the ground. So it's, it's starting up in the top of a tree and it's sending out these roots. And as those roots hit the ground, they begin to stiffen. They get, they get firm and they begin to create a kind of a lattice work of roots around this supporting tree. And every place those roots cross, they get even stronger until the point where the banyan tree has completely encircled its host tree 
And it actually begins to compete with that tree for nourishment. It competes for light, for moisture. It begins to crowd out the area where the roots of the other tree could grow. And it essentially strangles the host tree, killing it. And at some point, you end up with just this huge, actually banyan trees can get quite large, huge uh, trunk. It looks like a trunk because the, the roots fuse together. But there's this kind of a, a latticework. Uh, that instead of a regular trunk, there's this latticework of stiffened roots. So the, the hindrances are like this in our minds. They, they, there's this, you know, this notion of the competing for nourishment with wholesome qualities. That as the hindrances get entrenched, they are taking our energy. They are, they are getting, obstructing, getting in the way of wholesome qualities. So they are competing for the nourishment. And the other thing that I think is an apt analogy is that in thinking about the way the banyan tree sends out its shoots and the way where, where the, the roots cross, that they actually get stronger. That the hindrances are self-reinforcing. That they support each other. They encourage each other. So these are very powerful energies in our minds, these hindrances. So in our concentration practice, we, as Sally mentioned this morning, and as, as we've actually mentioned a couple of times, I think, already, the, the first kind of approach to working with hindrances, the first thing we actually have to recognize is that they are present. We do have to acknowledge them. We have to know that they're there. If we don't know they're there, they can be operating in the subconscious mind. And they may create a kind of an agenda in our mind around how we're even doing our concentration practice. This, I'm sure you've seen this kind of thing happen where you're trying to stay with your breath and there's a kind of a a striving or a holding or a pushing that's motivated by wanting. And if that wanting, if that hindrance of desire is not seen, it is being strengthened. It's being cultivated. And so we need to recognize when the hindrances are present. We need to know that they're present. When we see them present, typically in our Vipassana practice, we tend to let go of what we have been paying attention to and turn our attention directly to the hindrance itself. That's not the first approach with concentration practice. With concentration practice, we acknowledge the hindrance, we recognize it, and in that recognition, it's kind of like we set it aside or let it be in the background. We see if we can keep our attention with the breath, letting the hindrance be present, acknowledging it, knowing it's there, but seeing if we can keep the attention to the breath in the foreground with the hindrance in the background and kind of clearly knowing that the hindrance is in the background. There's a kind of a setting aside or a sense of not now. This takes some practice and some skill, actually. It's, it's not something, at least for me, it wasn't something that was obvious about how to do. Having done a lot of Vipassana practice, I, 
I was very um, familiar with turning towards the hindrances and actually was a little bit afraid to let the hindrances be in the background, thinking that they might, you know, rear their heads or get stronger somehow if, if I wasn't actively attending to them with mindfulness. But I did discover on my first uh, concentration retreat, the first concentration I, retreat I did was a month-long um, metta retreat. And getting this instruction, you know, okay, you, you'll notice the hindrances are rising, but just see if you can stay with the metta phrases. And I would notice anger arise. And just trying to let that be in the background. And over time, over the month of the metta practice, I really realized how much of a relief it was to just go, oh yeah, there it is, there's anger. I don't really have to do anything with it. I can just let it be and just stay with the metta phrases. And what I discovered, what, what, what we can discover with this, is that there's another way that um, these hindrances can diminish. That essentially, my understanding of how this works, that the, the letting it be in the background is a skillful strategy for working with hindrances in concentration practice, is that our attention, uh, what we are nourishing, what we are feeding as we are attending to the breathing, are this, the wholesome qualities that cultivate the concentration, the settled, the stability of mind with the breath. And knowing that that hindrance is in the background, it's kind of like that hindrance doesn't have any place to send its roots to get nourishment because the mindfulness and the attention are with the breath. Hindrances tend to feed on non-awareness. So when awareness is present and being attended to, even if that hindrance is left in the background, when mindfulness is present, it is not allowing there to be much unawareness for that hindrance to tap into, to nourish itself with. And so we can see that when we have this setting aside or setting letting the hindrance be in the background, that the hindrance can essentially diminish on its own because it is an impermanent impermanent quality of mind. It is a, a factor that feeds on thoughts, on energies. Like, for instance, ill will and sense desire. Typically, those feed on... Um, thoughts and emotions. And if we're taking our attention and placing it in the breath, there's not much room for the nourishing factors of thought and emotion to feed into that hindrance. So it's something that we need to, it's, it's, a, it's a terrain we need to learn to navigate over time, this letting be in the background. But it is... Um, a very helpful tool to learn how to use. It takes some trust. It takes some trust to, to do that. We need to be honest with ourselves about whether we can let this hindrance be set aside. This setting aside, or I think Sally used the phrase, just not now this morning. That's one that I use for myself, not now. And there's a kind of a way that I explore how I'm saying not now to the hindrance. Is it, oh, there's anger, 
not now. Or there's restlessness, not now. Or is it not now? Kind of an energy of pushing it away. So we need to be really honest with ourselves about whether we can set it aside without an aversive quality, without a repressing quality. This is not about repressing the hindrance. It's not about that at all. It's, it's more about letting it be, just not attending to it. What the Buddha might call a skillful ignoring of the hindrance. At times, we can't just set it aside or let it be in the background. Hindrances have more energy than that. They're, they're, they're kind of pushing themselves into our face. And so if that happens, we can um, a, a, approach it from some other directions, still, again, trying to stay with the breath. But in this case, perhaps, you know, half of the attention with the hindrance and half with the breath. Maybe, perhaps, thinking of breathing through the hindrance really consciously having the hindrance present in, in your mindfulness and uh, having the sense of allowing the breath to infuse the hindrance. So this is more of, a, of, a, of an approach you might take if the hindrance is a little bit stronger. So for instance, this I find helpful when the, the hindrances are strong in the body because the breath is an experience in the body. And when the hindrances are strong in the body, so for instance, you know, restlessness can get strong in the body. You can think of, you know, allowing a space, a spaciousness to breathe through the restlessness. Or perhaps anger, having a sense of pressure and tightness in the body and contraction around the heart. Can you breathe through those sensations? This can apply also to working with pain. If you, if you are finding pain in your body, you can have a sense of breathing through the pain. And sometimes the hindrance is even stronger in which it's more that uh, we can't even you know, necessarily breathe through it or we can barely be in touch with the breath. I think Philip talked about this last night that you know, the, the, the difficult mind state may be the thing that's front and center and we are pretty much aware and attending to the hindrance, but touching into the breath as we can. Just maybe every, every few seconds, ah, there's a breath, okay, and there's, there's the, uh, the, the anger, the, the desire, the wanting, the, um, the sleepiness. We just, every now and then, we can just touch into a breath, but more of our attention is on the hindrances. This is kind of like the hindrance being in the foreground and the breath in the background. Again, trying to stay connected with the breath as we can. And of course, as the hindrances get really strong, and it's sometimes the hindrances get strong enough that we just simply cannot find the breath. It, I remember at one point, uh, again, it was a, it was a, um, I was doing meta practice as my concentration practice and the hindrances got so strong that I couldn't even remember the metta phrases. And at that point it's like, okay, <laughs> I need to turn towards this difficulty. So this learning how and when to apply these various uh, levels or ranges of practice, I mean, I kind of think of it being a continuum almost, that you know, we try to stay with the breath as we can, 
you know, start with perhaps the hindrance in the background, the breath in the foreground, trying that. If we find the hindrance is a little stronger, maybe then the hindrance is more kind of we're trying to breathe with the hindrance. It might get that the hindrance is stronger, so the breath is in the background, the hindrance is in the foreground. And it might get so strong that the breath is just not possible to touch into, and we just need to bring our practice of mindfulness to the hindrance. And most of you, I think many of you, have had the teachings on bringing mindfulness, turning towards the hindrance, observing it directly with mindfulness. So I'm not going to go into that tonight. Most of you know how to work with that. So it takes some skillful means, some discernment to know when to uh, apply the, the, the various range, the, ver- the tools on the various ranges of this continuum. And one of the um, things I'd like to suggest is that, you know, let yourself notice whether you, um, in working with one of the tools, like if you're trying to be with the breath in the foreground and the hindrance in the background. If you notice the hindrance is getting stronger, then you might want to uh, be a little bit more active with working with that hindrance. So if if you're being with the breath in the foreground and the hindrance in the background, and, and the hindrance doesn't seem to be getting stronger, just stay with the breath. That's fine. But keep your eye on it. You know, you, you know, know that hindrance. Know that it's present. And notice whether it's starting to creep up on you. So this is, is a practice. And if we do need to turn towards the hindrance with mindfulness and let go of the breath, you know, in the practice of cultivating the mindfulness of the hindrance, we are still cultivating mindfulness. We're still cultivating the qualities of attending to our experience. So we are cultivating a form of concentration, even as we attend to a hindrance. And we're also learning about our minds. We're cultivating the knowledge that helps us to let go of that hindrance. This whole exploration of settling into concentration is not a a, a week-long project, actually. It's a long project of learning about your mind, learning how your mind struggles with itself, learning how your mind struggles with the practice. And so as we come up against these things, it's, it's it's not a failure, it's not a problem as we come up against the hindrances. It's our learning that is needing to, to happen at this moment. And the learning that happens supports the cultivation of concentration because the concentration, as the, as the concentration deepens, the hindrances fall away. As the hindrances fall away, the concentration deepens. So the, the work on either side is supporting the work of concentration. The work of Cultivating the deepening of concentration supports the letting go of the hindrances. The work of letting go of the hindrances supports the deepening of concentration. So they're really interconnected. And so you don't need to feel like there's, 
You know, like you're somehow doing a lesser practice or that somehow you've taken a left turn and you're no longer in the retreat because you're working with a hindrance. You're doing your work that needs to be done in the moment. So as we cultivate the concentration, this other side of it, this other side, there's the the letting go of the hindrances that helps to support our cultivation of concentration. And then there's the cultivation of the concentration itself. There are five factors that come together to, to support the concentration and to create the concentrated mind. These are the five jhanic factors, and they are, as, as Sally mentioned, um, the, I'll mention the Pali and the English of these. There's vitaka, the aspect of aiming the attention at experience. Vichara, the, the aspect of sustaining the attention on experience. There is piti, a rapture, interest, um, other translation, joyful attention, rapt interest. Then there is sukha, a sweetness, pleasure, comfort. And then, or happiness is another translation of that. And then there is ekagata, which is one-pointedness or unification of mind. So these factors come together to, to support the concentration. And as Sally mentioned, there's only a couple of them actually that we have direct uh, control over or direct ability to engage with, I, I'd rather say, direct ability to engage with. That's the first two of aiming and sustaining the attention, the vitaka and the vichara. The others are more a result that come together as we maintain and sustain our attention in a skillful way that's not grasping or pushing away, that doesn't have qualities of the hindrances involved in it, as the the vitaka and the vichara come together in a skillful way, these other qualities come along, they follow along. Each of these five factors, five jhanic factors, is said to naturally oppose one of the five hindrances. And so as these factors get strong, as the five factors get strong, the hindrances are naturally falling away. Now it's a temporary falling away. It's, it's not that they're gone for good. When these factors are present in the mind, the hindrances are not present. And so it's like a temporary uh, removal or seclusion from the hindrances. So these are beautiful factors to cultivate. And they create a state of mind in which we are free from the hindrances. Sometimes this is called the bliss of seclusion. Because we are secluded from these unwholesome states of mind. And it feels really good when the hindrances are not at present. It's, it, it has a, a beautiful feeling to it. So all five of these qualities come together to create uh, what we can call neighborhood or access concentration. This is, this is the, the basic concentration where the hindrances are at bay and the mind is very steady and stable. From this point in the um, 
the teachings, it said that we can choose to either move towards um, insight practice, where the, that concentrated and stable mind can be applied to recognizing the changing nature of experience and have insight into impermanent suffering, not self. And we can also, from that place of the balanced, stable mind of neighborhood concentration, choose to move into more absorption states of, of concentration. So these five factors are present in, the, uh, in this neighborhood concentration, and they're also present in the first jhana. And I think later in the retreat we'll talk more about the jhanas, so I'm not going to go into any um, detail about that this evening. I primarily want to explore these factors that come together to create the foundation for concentration and for jhana. So since these first two, vitaka and vichara, are the ones that we have the most ability to engage with, I'm going to spend a little more time talking about these first two, and I'll I'll give a little bit lighter touch to the other three. So, Ritaka, the initial, is the, the aiming of the attention, the initial application of mind. Vichara, the sustaining of the attention. They're said to be, as an analogy, it's, they're said to be um, compared to or related to the striking of a bell. We talk like the striking of a bell. And the wichara, the sustaining or the res- resonant quality of the bell as it rings. So... The vitaka is usually interpreted to mean aiming the attention towards experience, in this case, towards the breath. Directing the attention, placing the attention. This is something we can do with an act of will. We can choose where to place our attention. Vichara, the sustaining of the attention, usually interpreted as a a kind of a, a being with, uh, sustaining, a rubbing is the way my teacher Saira Pandita talked about it, a rubbing, a, a connecting with the experience. In thinking about the analogy of the bell, um, you know, the, the witaka is, is the, the striking of the bell. And the, the wichara, you know, the way that the attention can sustain on experience is going to be influenced by other conditions, much as the sustaining or the resounding of the bell is influenced by other conditions. If I hold on to the bell, it doesn't have that resonant quality. If there are other conditions, there may be changes to that resonance of the bell. So likewise in our experience, there, there are conditions that will support that uh, wichara to maintain. And I think a lot of this has to do with how we... There's also different ways to strike, right? I mean, (laughs) I can strike it like that. There's, There's different ways to aim the attention that impact how the... Uh, the resonance happens. 
And so the, the aspects, the factors of vitaka and vichara, really important how we play with them, how we apply them. And we've been emphasizing relaxation. We've been emphasizing gentleness in the approach to being with the breath. And so I'd like to to review this a little bit because I talked about some of this yesterday in the guided meditation that I offered. So in terms of the aiming of the attention, the directing of the attention, we can forcefully aim our minds kind of with a strong will, kind of like, I'm going to pay attention to that breath. Or there are some more gentle approaches. So I mentioned a couple of these yesterday, you know, the, the kind of settling back and allowing the breath to come to you, having a sense of, rather than going out and looking for the breath, to, to settle back and to receive the breath. This is a way of aiming the attention. It's just kind of a little more settled back. using that approach of, especially as the breath gets more subtle, not necessarily trying to look directly at it. You know, if you're, if you're paying attention to the breath in the no, the, at the nostrils, or, you know, any place that's kind of a small place. I pay attention to a quarter-sized place under, at my sternum primarily. And sometimes the breath gets very subtle in, as we pay attention to it. And when the breath starts getting really subtle, the inclination is to kind of force in and look harder. Where is it? Where is it? And what I find actually is helpful is to back off the, the effort at that point, to back off the intensity and almost see if from a broader or a, almost a peripheral perspective whether the subtlety of the breath can pop into view. I used the analogy yesterday of looking at stars that if you go out and look at stars at night, if you're looking at a, a dim star, if you try to look directly at it, it's hard to see. But if you look just off to the side, it pops into view. And I've seen a similar kind of thing with the subtlety of the breath, that instead of trying to look directly at it, kind of just let it come into the periphery, and then it can, it can pop into view. Another way to gently aim the attention is using what I call requests to, rather than trying to do the aiming. I mean, for instance, right now if I say to you, see if you can attend to the experience of the breath at the nostrils. Just let yourself feel an in-breath at the nostrils. Often that's not too hard because I've pointed you in that direction. I've, I've inclined you in that direction. And the mind, in hearing that, just naturally kind of moves in that direction. So we can kind of do the same thing for ourselves. I will, at times, in, if I'm finding that the effort is a little too forceful, I'll settle back and I'll just say to myself, may the attention rest with the breathing and then see what happens. Not try to do it, not try to find the breath, but allow the mind to find the breath, having made that request. I found this to be remarkably helpful, and not always, it doesn't always work, for sure, it doesn't always work, but 
it works more often than I would re- than I would imagine. And so this can be a really helpful way to begin to understand how the mind can pay attention, aim the attention in a gentle way as opposed to a forceful way. So this gentle aiming is kind of like the skillful tapping of a bell, which begins to allow a more um, full sustaining of the attention. So in the sustaining of the attention, and this is an area, again, where I think we tend to over-effort. We, we tend to use a lot of force in sustaining the attention. Because sustaining the attention is not easy. Um, and what I've learned to explore here is the natural kind of resonance that happens as we, as we, as we make uh, an aiming of the attention. There's a natural resonance that follows. And beginning to get familiar with that, how, as you aim the attention to the breath, it, there, there often is a natural length of time that the mind can stay with the breath in, in that moment, based on the way that you've aimed the attention. There's a kind of a natural sustaining that follows that. It may last half a second. It may last two seconds. So beginning to get familiar with this quality of the sustaining, this resonant resonance that happens as we aim, we begin to learn how to make Witaka and Wichara work together. As we aim the attention, there's a, a little bit of resonance that sustains and as we get familiar with that sustaining, we begin to see when it gets a little wobbly, when it starts to fade, and then we need to aim the attention again. And then we, we sit with that resonance for a while, and then we aim the attention again. And this, in this way of, of playing with Vitaka and Vichara, we, we learn how frequently we need to aim the attention as we do this practice, a momentum builds and the sustaining naturally lasts a little bit longer. It's like we're getting really skilled at hitting that bell so it lasts a long time. That resonance lasts a long time. And we begin to learn that we don't need to keep aiming the attention. We can, we can hang out in that space of the sustaining of the attention. So these two factors work together. And we, uh, we learn how to skillful, skillfully navigate these two factors together. Really helpful to use a light touch with the sustaining. Just, just enough energy at the beginning to stay with like a half a breath. You know, don't try to sustain the attention for much longer. Just, just a, a half a breath. And then reconnect with that notion of the aiming to the in-breath, sustain for the in-breath. Reconnect to the out-breath, sustain for the out-breath. And in this way, a half a breath at a time, the momentum begins to build. And then we begin to get familiar with that sustaining of the attention, and we realize, I don't need to keep aiming. I can be with two breaths and then touch in again.
So for me, this has been a really helpful exploration around working these two together. And I find it's very helpful to really take the time to allow this container of skillful use of these two qualities to settle in, to set up, to to kind of take the time to set up the relaxed attention. That's what we're, that's how I'm talking about this here, that these are the qualities of attention. We talk it and we chara are the qualities of attention and learning how to use those factors in a skillful way supports a relaxed attention. For myself, part of the way I've navigated this is starting from a place of relaxation, which is why I emphasize relaxation at the beginning of a guided meditation or at the beginning of a, of a sitting. I usually start with relaxation. And then from that place of relaxation, in, incline the mind to connect with the breath. You know, may, may the breath be present. May the mind connect with the breath as a, as a gentle way to connect with the breath. And if I find in that connecting with the breath that there's any tightness or tension, I go back to relaxation. It may be I only get a half a breath that's not tight or tense. And as soon as I start to see the mind clamp down, I'll just go back. Okay, just go back to that place of relaxation and try again. And I'll go back and forth like that for quite a while at the beginning of a sitting until the mind begins to be able to rest skillfully in a relaxed way with the breath. Well worth that time to, to, to find the way to be relaxed and attentive. It's not so helpful to just say, okay, well, I can just hang on to the breath and I'll hang on to the breath for long enough that I'll break into concentration. We can do that. And we can kind of push through that way. But it generally results in kind of a brittle form of concentration, one that's not very stable. So from my, that's the way I used to do it. I used to like, okay, yep, I'm just going to hold on to that. I'm going to do it. And I could get pretty concentrated, but it was not very stable. And I learned the hard way that it's really helpful to just take your time. Find the way into relaxed attention. It'll be different for each of you how that unfolds. So explore. It's, it's, it's really a playground, you know. This is a playground. <laughs> We're playing with our minds here. Learning how to be relaxed and attentive. So the, the factor of vitaka, that aiming of the attention, is understood to counter sloth and torpor. That dullness of mind. As we consciously connect to the breath, aiming the attention, it brings an energy and a freshness into the mind and counters that quality of dullness and sleepiness. So just to acknowledge, you know, this is only the second full day of retreat. Many of you are probably experiencing dullness and sleepiness, you know. This is like first two or three days of the retreat, that's a lot, there's a lot of of swamp out there, I know. (laughs) And it's okay. You know, just know that's okay. You can take naps, take short naps, rest, um, 
And also, you know, just try to stay with the breath, work with it. The resistance to the sloth and torpor, as, as uh, Philip so beautifully mentioned last night, that that resistance actually takes so much energy that it's the resistance to the sloth and torpor is binding up energy that could be used to attend to the breath with the sloth and torpor in the background. So, you know, there's no need to resist it. Just you know, let it be and see if you can stay with the breath, aiming the attention, perhaps being a little more precise, knowing that 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 aiming of the attention counters that dullness of mind. Noticing the beginning of the in-breath, in the guided meditation that Sally was talking about, it was very much, you know, that aiming of the attention. Noticing that, really helpful. Noticing the beginning of the out-breath, that regular aiming of the attention, connecting, will counter that sloth and torpor. Then um, the factor of Vichara, the sustaining of the attention, is understood to be the antidote to doubt. Doubt we experience in terms of doubt in ourselves, our ability to practice, doubt in the teachings, doubt in the teachers. Often when doubt is present, we're lost in thought and not connecting at all. I mean, we're just completely lost in thought. So it's really helpful to begin to recognize doubt. And for me, the main key is if I'm thinking about the practice, doubt may be present. So if you find yourself in a period of time and wake up into thinking about the practice, what kind of practice should I do? How should I engage? This practice isn't right. Maybe I should do this. Doubt is probably present. So when doubt is present, the antidote to doubt is connecting with experience and sustaining that attention on experience. Doubt can't get its roots in the ground when the attention is sustained on an experience. So we just need to be willing when we notice doubt is present to find an experience, the breath, find the breath, and see if you can stay with it. See if you can practice that sustaining of the attention. Be willing to try this and see whether this supports you. It does, th- it does take a willingness, a little bit of faith, that this will support me to, to let go of the doubt. And the, the seed of faith actually also helps to counter the doubt. So that trust, that willingness, try it and see. Run the experiment. Does this work? The third jhanic factor of rapture is delight and joy accompanied with interest in our experience. This comes about, again, this is not something that we do. This comes about as a result of the maintaining of our attention, the the practice of vitaka vichara, the aiming and sustaining of the attention. As that gets more continuous, this quality of rapture begins to naturally arise. This quality of um, interest in the breath begins to arise. Now we can't actively do this. We cultivate rapture by cultivating the conditions for rapture. And the main conditions for rapture are the sustaining, the aiming and the sustaining of the attention. And then there's another aspect that we can support 
uh, another condition that we can support in terms of rapture, which is um, the comfortableness of the breath. That we can play with allowing the breath to be comfortable, finding the, the pleasure in the breath. Sometimes this is actually pretty easily present if we're just open to it, if we just check in. Is there any pleasurable experience to be found as I'm exploring the breath? Sometimes it's quite obvious. So this um, connection with the pleasurable quality of the breath can also support the development of this third factor of rapture. The comfortable the comfortable breath is something that we can actively play with. There are, we can kind of come at it from two angles. We can come at it from the side of the body where we actually explore, are there different ways I might be able to breathe that would support the breathing to be a little more comfortable? For some people, this is uh, very helpful. I found this to work at times, but more helpful for me was to come at it from the side of the mind. That basically to look at the breath and to recognize, okay, if the breath doesn't feel comfortable, what's going on? Often it meant that there was something, a little bit, a little bit of aversion or a little bit of wanting in the mind that was obstructing the pleasurable qualities of the breath. So for me, exploring it from the side of the mind, is there a way I can be comfortable with the breath? Is there a way that this breath can be comfortable? Another way to explore this is, again, through the use of requests. May the breath become comfortable. Again, this can be surprising. This is a a way I found in for myself, using these requests. The mind can be quite amenable to this. Again, it's not that we're doing it. We're just dropping this request into the mind and body and seeing what the result is. It's kind of like dropping a pebble into a pond and seeing what the ripples are. Drop this request in. May the breathing become comfortable and see if the breathing shifts a little bit or if the comfortable experience around the breathing shifts a little bit. Rapture can be a very beautiful experience. It can can have a lot of physical manifestations accompanied by pleasant body sensation, tingling, tingling, goosebumps or flashes of energy or showering waves of pleasure, lightness in the body. Um, It can also have some kind of energetic experiences. It sounds wonderful and people say, oh yeah, I want that, but be careful what you wish for. The energy can get really strong at times and it it can get a little edgy or agitating also. So rapture often has a kind of physical component to it. It often feels quite nice. It has this aspect of interest. There's a quality of feeling nourished, that the the mind and the body feel like they're getting what they've been asking for in a a certain way. Just like there's a, a sense that, the way it's felt for me is it just felt like all my cells are just drinking it up. There can be a tendency, because rapture can be a kind of a strong experience, there can be a tendency for us to get pulled to the rapture. Somebody asked a question this morning about working with pleasant experiences in the meditation and how to work with them. 
So the sensations of rapture can be really interesting. You know, you're experiencing waves of pleasurable, orgasmic feelings through the body. You know, it's like, wow, that feels really good. You know, it's like the breath just recedes because it feels so good to be sitting in these waves. Well, a couple of things that you need to understand. One is that the rapture comes about because of the sustaining and the maintaining of the attention on the breath. That that was the nourishment. That was the cause for it arising. If we take that nourishment away, then we're removing the conditions that support the rapture. So the, uh, one of the most helpful things to do is just, again, it's kind of like working with the hindrances. Can you let the rapture be in the background and let the breath be in the foreground? Or perhaps breathe with the experience of rapture if they're very strong. It sometimes is a sense of just um, breathing with or breathing through the feelings of rapture. Allow, allow the feelings of rapture not to push them away. Interesting, the distinction of what happens as we allow the rapture to be in the background versus allowing a hindrance to be in the background. As we bring our attention to the breath in the foreground and allow the hindrance to be in the background, generally the hindrance dissipates. As we bring um, the breath in the foreground and allow the rapture to be in the background, generally it creates the conditions for the rapture to strengthen. It supports the rapture to maintain the attention with the breathing. Rapture counters the hindrance of ill will. When the mind is in a state of rapt interest, it is just not in the terrain of finding fault with things, finding out what's wrong. So it's the state of being happy, interested, is a state that naturally opposes ill will. Now again, this is not something that we can do, but as the concentration is cultivated, as we work with Vitaka and Vichara, and the, the attention is sustained and as rapture comes up, ill will will start to fade. So this is a way that we abandon the hindrance of ill will through the cultivation of concentration. The fourth is sukha, happiness, contentment, sweetness. It's a mental pleasure. It's part of or present with rapture. This quality of sukha is present with rapture, but often it's a little obscured because the energy of rapture is so much stronger than the quality of sukha. Sukha is a much more tranquil kind of experience. And so it can be obscured by the presence of rapture. So as the mind settles more, becomes a little bit more tranquil, the quality of sukha becomes more apparent to us. It's a, it's a kind of a refined kind of happiness. There's an analogy that talks about the distinction between rapture and happiness in the, in the texts. It describes that rapture is like 
the state of someone who's been walking in a desert and comes upon an oasis. You know, just imagine if you've been walking in a desert for a long time, the kind of joy that would come up for you, the happiness that would come up for you with the idea of relief from the thirst is, is, is near. So that's the pleasure of, that's the, the, comp, the comparison to rapture. The comparison for the sukkah is somebody who has taken a drink of the water from that oasis and is already resting in the shade of the trees in the oasis. So there's more of the sense of the thirst has been slaked and the mind is more at ease, that there's a contentment, there's a relaxation and ease, a, a, a tranquility with the happiness, the sukha. Sukha is understood to counter restlessness and anxiety. Again, as the mind becomes tranquil, more tranquil and settled, content, there's no room for that agitated energy of restlessness. Restlessness, both physical and mental, is an excess of energy. And this quality of sukha settles our energy. We also will have a tendency to grasp at sukha because it's also very pleasant. My own um, expression for sukha is, oh, yes. <laughs> it's the oh, yes state. <laughs> it's like, oh, it feels really good. So we can grasp at it. Again, See if you can. Let it be in the background. Stay with the breath. Stay with the supports that allow it to be nourished. The nourishment of these qualities. Then there is the fifth aspect of ekagata. One-pointedness or unification of mind. And these two translations, I think, offer two ways of exploring and understanding this factor of ekagata. The one-pointedness points us to the, the kind of concentration that is cultivated on a single object, where the mind gets more still based on attending to one object. The unification of mind can be understood, the translation of ekagata's unification of mind can be understood as a broader kind of concentration, where the mind is settled and stable, not whipped around by the hindrances, able to meet whatever is arising. And so this is the kind of um, understanding that allows us to understand the, the broader concentration, the moment-to-moment concentration that Philip spoke of. Or was it maybe Sally spoke of? So this quality of one-pointedness, unification of mind, is present in whether the concentration is on a single object or whether the concentration is stable on changing objects. So I just wanted to, to make that clear. This, this translation of one-pointedness sometimes makes us think that this only is happening when we're paying attention to one object. But this quality of mind comes up 
in both kinds of concentration. It's sometimes used as a synonym for samadhi, this, this term. It's this unification of mind, this balance of mind. It contains a mind that is more stable, it's not reactive. Again, it's a result of sustaining the attention. The vitaka, the vichara are the, the ground out of which all of these other factors grow. The continuity of our mindfulness, either on one object or on changing objects, supports this quality of one-pointedness, of unification of mind to become strong. The mind feels balanced. It feels contented. There's no problem. Nothing that we need to change. And this points to the hindrance that this factor of mind opposes, which is sense desire. That when we're in this state of unification of mind, the mind is completely contented with whatever is happening. There's no need to want anything. So the desire to want to have things falls away with that state. And in this, as this factor begins to get strong, as all the factors come together, we begin to get a sense of how concentration helps us to overcome all of the hindrances. It points a way to a happiness that is deeper and more satisfying than our normal way that we operate in the world, the normal way that we go after sense desire, trying to construct the world that we'd like it to be finding the next hit of pleasure, getting rid of the next thing that we don't want in our environment. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, if by renouncing a lesser happiness one may realize a greater happiness, let the wise one renounce the lesser, having regard for the greater. This is the, what we begin to see with the concentration that comes where these factors come into balance together. As these factors come into balance together, the hindrances fall away. We experience a kind of happiness that is much more satisfying than the happiness of getting what we want. And we begin to realize that renouncing the happiness of sense-desire helps us to move towards the happiness, this deeper kind of happiness. So this practice of exploring our minds, getting to know the hindrances, allowing them to fall away, practicing concentration, cultivating these factors. We are exploring our minds here. We're learning about our minds. However you are engaged in this moment, whatever's happening now, that's where we start. We've said that a few times. We start where we are. If that's with a restless mind, we bring the breath through the restlessness. If we need to, we turn to the restlessness if we're starting with a mind that's a little more settled and stable and satisfied with just being with the breath, that's where we start. There's no right or wrong. 
however you are engaging is supporting either the it's it's actually supporting both whenever we're cultivating letting go of the hindrances we're already cultivating qualities that support the factors of jhana whenever we're cultivating the factors of jhana we're already cultivating things that help us let go of the hindrances wherever you are however you're engaging that is the practice Let's just sit for a moment and allow the words to just drift away. Thank you for your attention. So we have about 25 minutes for walking and we'll come back for the sitting and chanting.